1: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code history at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hey, I'm Chuck and I'm Josh and we're the host of stuff you should know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and
2: unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts.
1: To Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello
0: and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry has come up two different times in recent episodes of our podcast. The first time was in our two parter on Harriet Tubman. And then it came up again in our episode on Marianne Shad Carey. And then it came up two different times on a completely different podcast, which is Politically Reactive with W. Kamal Bell and Hari Kondabolu. And on, as I said, on two different episodes, plus we've had a ton of listener requests to talk about this one as well. So it seems like it's time for the world to have an episode on
1: John Brown's Raid at Harper's Ferry. There you go. For background, John Brown was born in Torrington, Connecticut on May 9th of 1800. His family were strict Calvinists, and John's father, Owen, was a white abolitionist who believed fervently that holding people in bondage was a sin against God. In 1805, Owen moved the family to Hudson, Ohio, where he became deeply involved in the town's efforts in the Underground Railroad, including sheltering escaping slaves in the family's barn.
0: There are still a bunch of houses in Hudson that are still existing that were tied to the Underground Railroad. And when you read the descriptions of them, his name comes up over and over and over again. In 1821, John Brown married Diantha Lusk, with whom he would have seven children before both she and their seventh child died in 1832. Then in 1833, Brown remarried Mary Day, who at that point was 16, and the two of them would have another 13 children. Uh, There are also several sources that say they adopted a previously uh, enslaved child and then raised that child as their own as well. Brown approached parenthood in a way that was both strict and austere, including some corporal punishment that uh, could be described as cruel. In
1: 1837, at the memorial service for anti-slavery newspaper publisher Elijah Lovejoy, who had been murdered by a pro-slavery mob, Brown made a public vow. He stood before the congregation and said, quote, here before God in the presence of these witnesses, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. This devotion to ending slavery and his Calvinist upbringing would eventually combine into a complete and utter certainty that he was predestined to bring about slavery's end.
0: It was a while before he really put that belief into concrete action, though. He and his family moved around a lot. And during his life, Brown would live, among other places, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Kansas, Massachusetts, and New York. He also moved from job to job, doing everything from farming to land speculation to trading wool to try to earn his money.
1: And for the most part, these efforts to make money were not particularly successful. And in 1842, he even wound up in federal court as he went through a bankruptcy, partially brought on by the Panic of 1837. But as has been the case with some of our other podcast subjects, including Bronson Alcott and Harriet Tubman, he didn't let a lack of money stop him from trying to put what he did have towards causes that mattered to him.
0: These efforts, in many cases, were ambitious. For example, Brown wanted to expand the Underground Railroad into what he called the Subterranean Pathway. And this would be an enormous effort that would take advantage of the remote and difficult terrain of the Appalachian Mountains to extend the Underground Railroad's activities beyond the border states and into the Deep South.
1: Under this plan... A small group of operatives would raid plantations, liberate the people enslaved there, and then guide them into the mountains where they could be secreted north. He hoped to free hundreds of thousands of slaves in this way, but the subterranean pathway wasn't just about freedom. As part of this plan, some of these liberated people would become part of an armed fighting force of free black people who would forcibly end slavery in the South by raiding plantations and robbing slave owners of their power and their workforce.
0: Although a lot of people remember the abolitionist movement in the United States as being relatively nonviolent, Brown's focus on armed resistance was not unique. So running parallel to the abolitionists who did things like write write essays and deliver speeches and work for legal reforms and help enslaved people liberate themselves. There were also radical abolitionists who thought that violence would be required to bring slavery to an end.
1: For example, John Brown was one of the people who had helped fund David Walker's Appeal, which was published in 1829. Walker was a free black man from the South. And his work, Appeal, was a radical anti-slavery document that called for enslaved people to rise up against their owners. He wrote, quote, They want us for their slaves and think nothing of murdering us. Therefore, if there is an attempt made by us, kill or be killed. And believe this, that it is no more harm for you to kill a man who is trying to kill you than it is for you to take a drink of water when thirsty.
0: Brown was also connected to Henry Highland Garnet, who had been enslaved from birth before escaping with his family at age nine. Garnet gave a speech at the National Negro Convention in 1843 that became known as the Call to Rebellion. In this speech, he said, quote, you cannot be more oppressed than you have been. You cannot suffer greater cruelties than you have already. Rather die freemen than live to be slaves.
1: For Brown's part, His belief that violence was required to bring an end to slavery was tied directly to United States history. Rather than putting pressure on southern states to put a rapid end to slavery, the northern states and the federal government had a history of compromises and appeasing slave states in the interest of keeping the South in the Union. One of these was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, after which Brown helped found the League of Gileadites, which was a radical organization dedicated to protecting escaped slaves from slave catchers, again, through violent means if necessary.
0: Another act that was meant to appease slave states led John Brown to shift from violent rhetoric to actual violence. And this is where some of the things we're talking about are going to get a little bit gruesome. So just so you know... We will get into that after a brief sponsor break.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever
0: you get your podcasts. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So for a little bit of context, if you don't remember... Under the Missouri Compromise of 1820, Congress had maintained a balance between slave states and free states by admitting Maine as a free state and Missouri as a slave state. And then also by drawing a line at parallel 36 degrees, 30 minutes north. Uh, uh, And that was basically a border for slavery. Slavery would be outlawed when new states north of that line entered the Union. However, the Kansas-Nebraska Act upended that previous compromise, and it instead allowed new states to
1: decide whether to allow slavery when they joined the Union by popular vote. Nebraska is north of Kansas, and most people considered that territory pretty well decided on being a free state when it entered the Union. Kansas, however, was not nearly so certain. And as a result, people both in favor of and against slavery flooded to Kansas to try to sway the vote one way or another. Kansas became a literal battleground, and the result was a period of violent conflict that came to be known as Bleeding Kansas.
0: John Brown was one of the people specifically one of the anti-slavery people who went to Kansas to fight. He actually followed in the wake of five of his sons who had already moved there, and he arrived with a wagon full of swords and rifles in 1855. In December of that year, he led a fighting force as he and his neighbors went to defend the town of Lawrence, which was a, an anti-slavery town, from a pro-slavery invasion.
1: The following May, Brown's father died. And at about the same time, abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner had been caned on the Senate floor. There's an episode about that incident in the archives. Brown was simultaneously grief stricken over his father and outraged over Charles Sumner. And at about the same time, pro-slavery forces returned to Lawrence and sacked it. And when he was urged to act with caution and restraint, Brown said, quote, caution, caution, sir. I am eternally tired of hearing the word caution. It is nothing but the word of cowardice. On May
0: 24th of 1856, Brown led a small party in dragging five pro-slavery men out of their cabins and hacking them to death in retribution for the sacking of Lawrence. This would come to be known as the Pottawatomie Massacre. John Brown's involvement in these murders had multiple consequences. Two of his sons who had not participated but were distraught at what their father had done had psychological breakdowns. Another son, Frederick, who had participated, was killed in the aftermath. And a lot of the rest of the abolitionist community was actually horrified by what he had done. But Brown was steadfast in that
1: action he had taken. And the murders were a tipping point in Kansas as pro-slavery forces sought retribution and federal troops went from community to community on a relentless search for Brown and his party. Brown, on the other hand, evaded capture, which in his mind solidified his idea that he could similarly evade capture in the Appalachian Mountains as part of his subterranean passway strategy. He just needed weapons and a few men, and he left Kansas to find them in January of 1858. He started meeting
0: with some of the most prominent black abolitionist leaders, including Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. With Douglas, he drafted a constitution for a provisional government of the community of liberated slaves that he was hoping to build, of which he hoped that Frederick Douglass would be president. He then went to Chatham, Ontario, which is home uh, of Mary Ann Shad Carey, which is how that came up previously, to plan the raid that would launch this movement. His target for the raid was Harpers Ferry, Virginia.
1: Virginia was a slave state and Harper's Ferry was in a strategic position, where the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers meet. It was also home to a federal arsenal that he planned to use to arm his fighters, many of whom would be liberated slaves, as well as an ironworks, a munitions factory, and other industries that would be useful for a growing rebellion. The surrounding counties were home to about 18,000 enslaved people, as well as sympathetic white residents of the nearby Appalachian Mountains, all of whom he hoped to bring into his cause.
0: Yeah, a lot of the people he was supposed, or that he was hoping to draw from in terms of white support were from what is now West Virginia, which was much more anti-slavery than the other rest of Virginia. And that is why West Virginia seceded from Virginia during all of this. Having planned this raid out while he was in Chatham, He started connecting with other abolitionists in New York and Massachusetts to try to get the money to carry out this plan. He ultimately got financial backing from a group of wealthy abolitionists who came to be known as the Secret Six. These were George L. Steams, Garrett Smith, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Theodore Parker, Franklin Sanborn,
1: and Samuel Gridley Howe. But then things got derailed a little. Mercenary Hugh Forbes threatened to expose the plan, which caused Brown to return to Kansas to try to avoid suspicion. He stayed for six months, and when he left, sort of as a proof of concept, he liberated a Missouri slave named Jim Daniels and his family, along with a handful of people enslaved on nearby plantations, and he sheltered them in Kansas for a month before eluding capture and slave catchers to guide them to Canada. With this success under his
0: belt, Brown got back to the task of raiding Harper's Ferry. He rented a house across the border in Maryland as a base of operations. He bought rifles and pikes and basically started outfitting this slave army that he believed would come to join him at Harper's Ferry as soon as they learned what he was doing. He also enlisted Harriet Tubman to travel through the area's plantations and spread the word uh, and enlist the help of the enslaved people in the surrounding counties.
1: The actual raid began on October 16th of 1859, and Brown was 59 years old at the time. His force was smaller than originally planned. It was 22 people total, three of them left behind at the rented house in Maryland to receive liberated slaves. So Brown and 19 men made their way into Harper's Ferry by night, cut the telegraph lines, and took control of the railroad station and the musket factory and rifle works, which were essentially unguarded. Then they abducted some of the area's most notorious slave owners, and they took them to the engine house of the train station as hostages. There was only one fatality in that original takeover, and that was a free black porter who had been working at the train station. With the telegraph lines
0: cut, the biggest source of news out of Harper's Ferry overnight was a train that came through at the station after Brown took it over, which they actually allowed to pass, even though it meant risking that the people aboard would take word to the authorities of what was happening, which they did. Soon, rumors started to spread that John Brown had taken Harper's Ferry, first with 50 people, and then with 100, and then with 200. And by morning, it was clear to uh, people living there that Brown had indeed taken over several strategic points, and the town started to muster a resistance.
1: At first, this resistance was mostly in the form of militia and local farmers and slave owners. But at the same time, the vast wave of support Brown had expected just did not materialize. There were several reasons for this. One was that so much time had passed between the meeting in Chatham, Ontario, and the raid, that a lot of the black population that had been interested in helping had lost interest, or they had just lost touch with Brown and his allies. Another was that Harriet Tubman couldn't be found when Brown decided to go ahead with the raid. The historical record is not entirely clear on why they couldn't locate her, but she may have been ill.
0: Yeah, she had already done some preliminary uh, searching slash work through the, the plantations of the area to spread the word of what was coming. But they had expected her to be on hand to to rally support further when the raid actually happened and they just couldn't find her. Even though there is evidence that a few enslaved people from nearby did join the raid, it was definitely not the groundswell of massive support that Brown had been expecting. So soon, he and his raiders were surrounded and pinned in at both the train station and the musket factory and rifle works. Two attempts to send somebody to call for a ceasefire under a a white flag both failed. The second person sent was actually Brown's son, Watson, who was shot and killed.
1: Some of Brown's men tried to flee their positions via the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers, leading to their being shot, some of them while still in the water. And meanwhile, Brown and the men he was holed up with in the engine house of the train station drilled holes in the door that they could shoot through, hoping to hit their attackers. And they were mostly unsuccessful, although one shot did hit Harper's Ferry Mayor Fontaine Beckham.
0: Beckham's death, any support that Brown's raid might have had among Harper's Ferry's residents just evaporated. A mob stormed the hotel where William Thompson, which was the first man that had been sent out for a ceasefire, was being held. They shot him in the head and threw him into the Potomac.
1: Eventually, President James Buchanan dispatched Marines under the command of Robert E. Lee to restore order. At that point, Harpers Ferry's streets were mobbed with both trained fighters and angry rabble trying to get at Brown's men in the engine house, all but four of whom were by that point injured or dead. After arriving
0: around midnight, Lee sent J.E.B. Stewart, who would go on to become Lee's own cavalry commander on the southern side in the Civil War, to the engine house under a white flag to negotiate. Stewart promised Brown protection from the mob and a fair trial if he would let the hostages go. Brown refused. He wanted himself and his surviving men to be allowed to go back to Maryland with the hostages as basically a, a strategic point. And then they would free the hostages once they
1: were safely back in Maryland. With negotiations at an impasse, Lee sent men to batter down the door the morning of the 18th. Marines swarmed the engine house, killing some of Brown's few remaining men and taking others prisoner. Brown was hit with a sword and only survived because the sword happened to hit a buckle that he was wearing. In the end, of the original crew of 19 men, 10 had been killed or mortally wounded, two of them being Brown's sons, and five had been taken prisoner. There were also six civilian deaths, the mayor, two townspeople, two enslaved people that belonged to the hostages, and the porter that had been killed at the train station.
0: Here's how the official report described it. Quote, a fanatical man stimulated to recklessness and desperation by the constant teachings and intemperate appeals of wild and treasonable enthusiasts who, Unrestrained by the Constitution and the laws of the land, by the precepts of religion, by appeals of humanity or of mercy, formed a conspiracy to make a sudden descent upon the people of Harper's Ferry, to rob the arsenal, plunder public property, and stir up servile insurrection. With that brief recap from the official report, uh, we will take a brief word from a sponsor before we talk about the raid's aftermath.
1: It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: After their capture, Brown and his surviving men were put on trial. The charges were murder, treason, and conspiring with Negroes to produce insurrection. That trial began on October 26th, just 10 days after the raid. All of the men were found guilty, and the penalty for all of the charges was death. John Brown was hanged on December 2nd of 1859. Before his hanging, he handed a guard a note that read, quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. Among those present were Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and John Wilkes Booth.
0: Measured by whether it launched an armed slave resistance that freed thousands of slaves and forcibly wrested control of the South from slave owners as had been the original plan, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry was a complete failure. Measured by whether it launched an armed slave resistance that freed thousands of slaves and forcibly wrested control of the South from slave owners as had been the original plan, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry was a complete failure, but measured by its ultimate effect on the progression of slavery in the United States, it's a completely different story. The same way that those murders of five pro-slavery settlers in Kansas that we talked about earlier had sparked a tide of violence there, the raid at Harper's Ferry inflamed passions, tensions and violence around slavery and the relationships between slave and free states.
1: In many circles in the North, John Brown became a martyr, especially as he was eloquent and steadfast in his denunciations of slavery while on trial. And people doubled down on their efforts to abolish the institution. But in the South, people were terrified. The idea of a slave insurrection was already a source of fear in a lot of the South. And in some places, white slave owners and the rest of the white population were vastly outnumbered by enslaved people. So the idea that these people might unite and violently overthrow their owners was petrifying. The South tried to downplay Brown's raid as unimportant in an effort to dismiss it, while simultaneously being completely horrified at what it could spell for the future.
0: On a more practical level, many parts of the South renewed their call for militia membership and military drills of those militia, so that when the Civil War did begin, those militias that had been created under the idea of fighting a potential John Brown-inspired rebellion, if it was necessary, were already there and trained and ready to go to war.
1: It was also one of many events that happened in the late 1850s that stoked political passions over the issue of slavery. The Democrats split over the issue of slavery in the 1860 election, with pro- and anti-slavery factions each putting forth candidates for presidency and neither securing a necessary two-thirds majority at the party convention. After a series of efforts to unite the party, the Democratic Party nominated Senator Stephen A. Douglas, while the Southern Democrats nominated John C. Breckinridge, and both Douglas and Breckinridge presented themselves as the official party candidates.
0: Meanwhile, an entire other party, the Constitutional Union Party, nominated former Senator John Bell of Tennessee to be their candidate for president. And in the end, it was Abraham Lincoln, the Republican nominee, who won this four-way election with only 180 electoral votes and just shy of 40 percent of the popular vote. As a consequence of Lincoln's election, 11 southern states seceded from the Union, which directly led to the Civil War. Fifty years after the raid, Frederick Douglass would say that John Brown, quote, began the war that ended American slavery and uh, made this a free republic. There are a lot of historians who basically think without this lightning point of Harper's Ferry, there would not have been that four way uh, split in the election that ultimately uh, led Lincoln to be elected, not with a whole majority of the popular vote.
1: And for decades, even a century after the raid, historical accounts painted Brown as mentally unstable, with descriptions being full of words like delusional and madman. But really, Brown was methodical and well-researched in this whole idea. He had studied other uprisings, including Nat Turner's rebellion and the Haitian Revolution. And he had also studied guerrilla resistance to military forces in both Europe and the United States, including in the colonial era. Today, some historical depictions of him have shifted a little bit to be uh, more including of language like fiercely devoted rather than uh, unhinged and insane. Yeah, even when he was alive at first,
0: uh, as news of the raid was spreading, uh, even in the north where it sort of reinvigorated abolition uh, as a cause, um, at first there were people who were like that. Ban is not in his right mind mind and sentiment shifted about him as he continually made these like steadfast and very eloquent denunciations of slavery during his trial um so the idea that everybody thought that he was like mentally unwell even at the time was not totally accurate um Harriet Tubman in particular described him as being the only white person that she ever met who actually thought that slavery was a life or death issue that really needed to be treated that way. Um, and even like, even in the more recent past, uh, you see divisions in how people talk about John Brown and like, whether his ideas were good and whether he uh, was, was making sense in a methodical way or whether he was sort of flying off in this, delusional fervor um, like the uh, Malcolm X talked about. If you, if you meet a white person who says that they are uh, in favor of black power, find out what they think about John Brown. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that sort of led to the, in the politically reactive podcast that we talked about early, earlier in the top of the show um, was that they were talking about John Brown, white people, uh, and this idea of people who are that fervently devoted and that ready to put their own lives on the line no matter what, uh, to end slavery. So he's a complicated person. Yeah. I feel like we, I feel like we barely scratched the surface of his complicatedness, uh,
1: and, and what people thought about him then and now. Uh, some less complicated listener man would be stupendous if you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so much less complicated. It's about margarine.
0: Yay! Uh, Nicholas wrote and said, great stuff you missed in history pod on butter and margarine. I was struck by your discussion of margarine sold with coloring consumers would add at home. One explanation not mentioned in the pod, consumers wanted to appear to be able to afford butter. So coloring at home was attractive. This is similar to stories of people refilling Coca-Cola bottles with Pepsi when serving guests because Coke was the more expensive higher class product. I would be interested in a pod about the history of people disguising cheap products as expensive project products, not for profit like the butter fraud, but for social comparison purposes to impress the neighbors. Perhaps the epitome of this was 50 cents claim in his bankruptcy proceedings that the piles of hundred dollar bills in his social media posts were rented money to appear to be living a certain lifestyle. Thanks for your work, Nick. Uh, Thank you, Nick. We got a handful of notes along these lines about how, um, like they had family members who would refill the butter container with colored margarine and be like, don't tell your grandma. <laughs> uh, to make it look like they, they had been able to shell out the money for butter. I had not heard about this, um, this 50 cent story and I went to look into it and I, I didn't find, um, the idea that he had rented hundred dollar bills. Uh, But I did find a lot like a a lot of claims in his bankruptcy court where he was like, no, I just rented all those luxury cars and all this jewelry is also rented. Like I've been renting all of this stuff. I don't actually own any of it uh, as part of his defense in those proceedings. So um, thank you to Nick for that email. And thank you for the folks who have written to us. Some of you, some of you with your own family stories about your own family members who were like, I'm just going to shape this. Margarine into the shape of a stick of butter. <laughs> Put it on the table when we have people over for company. Uh, if you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Myst History and on Twitter at Myst in History. Our Tumblr at miss is com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Myst History. We have an Instagram at Myst in History also. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and learn about almost anything your heart desires. And you can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes of all of our episodes and an archive of all of our episodes. The show notes are for the episodes that Holly and I have worked on. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed.
1: side